Welcome to the Bloomberg PL Podcast. I'm Pim Fox, along with my co-host, Lisa Abramowitz. Each day, we bring you the most important, noteworthy, and useful interviews for you and your money, whether you're at the grocery store or the trading floor. Find the Bloomberg PL Podcast on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, and Bloomberg.com. Let's turn our attention now to Argentina, where the central bank has risen interest rates three times in the past week uh, just to support its currency. The result, it is not working. Joining us now, Paul McNamara, Investment Director for Emerging Markets at GAM UK Limited, overseeing about $11 billion in developing world assets. Paul, thank you so much for being here. Uh, we're looking at a lira that is tanking. We're looking at uh, that yields that are absolutely skyrocketing on Argentinian bonds. Is this a buying opportunity? Uh, we think it is. Um, sorry, you, you said lira. Uh, the lira uh, is the one that we don't think is a buying opportunity. Turkey has quite similar problems to Argentina. Ah, sorry, <laughs> I'm getting my trouble spot confused. The, sorry. No, no, the, different, the, the differences really favor Argentina. Um, Argentina is a much less indebted economy. So, uh, you know, they, the, the Argentines did 3% last Friday. They did 3% yesterday. They did 6 and three quarter percent today. But, you know, this is an economy with a very low level of leverage where the burden of hiking rates is much less severe on the real economy. Um, it, it, you know, it's something that can translate relatively smoothly to currency strength, unlike you know, most countries in the developed world or most countries in EM, where you know, obviously the conflict between the damage done by higher rates and the damage done by a weaker currency. In Argentina, um, I think it's fairly clear that, that all, the, all the burden, all the damage comes from a weaker peso. Um, so everything favors that the the, the Argentine authorities doing everything they possibly can to keep the peso in place. Well, just to push back a little bit, because if, if you see this as a buying opportunity for the Argentine peso or perhaps some of the debt that's selling off, I'm just wondering about the root of the weakness here, which is the fear that the right-leaning leadership isn't doing as much as it needs to be doing uh, to support the nation's economy and its finances. What's your take on that? Uh, no, I mean, you know, we've got right-wing governments or populist governments all over the world sort of not supporting the economy. The economy, You know, if you look at Russia, if you look at Poland, if you look uh, pretty much everywhere. Uh, I mean, the reason that Argentina and, again, Turkey are getting hammered is not so much to do with economic strength. It's to do with the external balances. These are both countries where imports are, mo are rising much faster than exports. You know, the currency has become uncompetitive. Um, you know, and, and the way to address that is to, you know, is to bring import demand down a bit and give people a reason to hold uh, their money in local currency, which I think uh, higher rates will help with. Um, you know, growth, growth in Argentina is respectable. It's, you know, it, it, it's not outrageously high. But I think it, it, you know, it's, it's positive that the authorities are willing to hike rates and looking for stability ahead of a dash for growth. Paul, why did this happen? I mean, what's the reason? Doesn't this go back to something that happened in December? Um, I, I think the rate hikes at the end of last year and the start of this year, yes, that, that, that there was a perception that, uh, the, you know, that, that the Argentines were kind of engaging in this dash for growth, that, you know, that stability and lower inflation had taken second place. But, you know, the rate cuts that they did, you know, across the turn of the year have been more than reversed since then. Uh, so I, I, I think it would be fair to say that the Argentines have got the message. Okay, so you think it's a buying opportunity. What's the best opportunity? Is it the peso? Is it 
a certain bond well, issuance? I mean, I, you know, as ever, if, if, if you say something, something is a buy. I mean, as somebody who's running an EM portfolio, we think relative to other emerging markets, it looks like a buy. Uh, we think, you know, that the peso has overshot here, that you're getting uh, an interest, you know, interest rates up at around 40% on Argentine peso assets. Uh, we prefer peso assets here, yes. Okay, what about, uh, let's talk about Turkey, because that's the other uh, sure. big uh, big name in the news. And you were saying that you are not positive on uh, the lira there, which is tanking, I believe, uh, in some measures to its weakest levels uh, in near history. What's your take on what's happening there? Well, I, 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 the, the problems in Turkey look to us fairly severe. You know, uh, above all, you know, the, the one thing you don't want to see in emerging markets is a huge buildup of foreign debt um, to support activity which only generates local currency. You know, we saw it in Asia in 1997. Uh, we've seen it in lots of countries along the way because uh, what happens is as the currency falls, the ability of the banks and the corporate sector to, to pay that debt uh, falls. Um, you know, and unlike Argentina, you know, the level of foreign debt in Turkey is extremely high. Uh, so the, and at the same time, activity in uh, business activity in Turkey is falling very slowly. Plus, you have political changes, which I think militate in favor of capital flight and moving money out of the country and a very low level of foreign exchange reserves. If you take that mix together, uh, you know, we think that there's a real possibility of a major economic crisis in Turkey this year. So what would you do? Go short Turkey, go long Argentina? Would that be a good trade? Uh, <laughs> I think we'd find it an attractive trade, but it's, it, 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 it's definitely one for the brave. Uh, it, it, you know, this is, this is not one for widows and orphans. <laughs> um, just really quick, I'm wondering, just in general, we've seen uh, two weeks of outflows from emerging market funds, uh, the most uh, since December 2016. Are you concerned about general broader weakness due to the strength, stronger dollar? Uh, well, yeah, I mean, as somebody, you know, who kind of makes their living in this market, uh, I think we have to be concerned. I mean, what we've seen is, you know, after two years of quite a weak dollar, we've seen the dollar snap back. And it's always been the case that, you know, that when the dollar rallies against DM, it rallies stronger against EM. And everything we've seen since then has been in line with that. Uh, unlike, you know, say 2013 or 2008, we don't see weakness in EM. We're not seeing external deficits. So we think that the fundamentals in EM this time are, are much more supportive. Thanks very much, Paul McNamara, Investment Director for Emerging Markets for GAM UK, helping to manage about $11 billion in developing world assets, uh, joining us on the phone from London. Right now, let's turn our attention to the jobs data that we got out from uh, the U.S. this morning. Uh, yes, we saw the jobless rate fall to 3.9 percent, the lowest since April 2000. But wages did not increase as much as many people had expected. Tom Gimble joins us now. He is founder and chief executive officer of LaSalle Network. And uh, Tom, I'm really glad you're here. You are the person I want to speak with. I want to talk about uh, why we are not seeing bigger increases in what we earn? Well, right now we've got a, a labor market that 
um, is, as you said, the best labor market we've had since 2000 with unemployment below 4%. So the question is, we're not bringing in the hourly wages reflecting the service wages. So we haven't seen the influx from the municipalities increasing minimum wage. And I think we'll start to see that as that minimum wage continues to grow. But the service positions are still not, are still driving the unemployment rate down. And what we're not seeing is when people get hired in white collar jobs and someone goes from making 50000 to 60000 they're also being replaced by people coming in at lower salaries. So it's not as easy as saying, oh, well, if unemployment's low, then everybody's making more money. That's not where the market's at right now. And that's because of the global economy in a sense as well, that we can, we, there's so much production being done around the globe that we're not competing against the neighbor and that we're not getting more money tomorrow than we were yesterday. That's the challenge. Yeah. But the good news is there's more jobs, but there, there's, there's no one should be out of work right now. Well, okay, but but Tom, I want to push back a little bit because you're saying that uh, that basically people don't have to pay more, companies don't have to pay more unless the minimum wage rules are are changed. But aren't a lot of CEOs saying that they have trouble finding qualified workers right now, and wouldn't they have an easier time if they just offered more money? No, so so. Paying more doesn't get somebody more qualified. So to pay more, the, the vision of most CEOs and CFOs, or not the vision, the reality, is they're not going to pay more for the exact same person they can get. This is what happened in 2002 up till 2008, is that that boom was fueled by companies were paying more for people just for the sake of saying, we need more people, we're going to pay outrageous amounts of money, and it didn't work, right? Now, I'm not saying that the housing market wasn't the driver for that crash, but what we have now is a more responsible group of corporate leaders, and they're saying that we're not going to pay more just for the sake of paying more. Unemployment to 3.9%. To go hire somebody who's unemployed and just pay them more, that doesn't make fiscal sense. Tom, uh, there are 5.9 million open jobs in the United States. At least that's according to LaSalle Network, right? Yep. yep. Okay. Where are the most, where's the most demand? And I mean, demand, not that you need a PhD in, you know, astrophysics or, or mathematics. Where's the biggest demand right now? So the biggest demand is in sales, in computer and technology, developers, coders, and programmers, and then in healthcare, right? And that's been the same way going on for half a decade now, that those are the drivers. Sales really more in the past three years to keep fueling this economy. Corporations want to increase revenue. Where I think we're going to get a burst is I think the July numbers and the August numbers are going to be really good because you're going to see it's a great time to be graduating college right now. All right. And that's why well, of- I'm glad you mentioned graduating college, because I'm wondering, these entry level positions or are these positions for which you need a lot of experience or would even internships qualify you? Yeah, no, it, it's, it's, it's for all of the above. And so that's the big difference is that companies would love to hire some experienced people. However, the ones who are unemployed, that's where the skills gap exists. The long-term unemployed don't have the skills to be hired in this market. So what companies do is they hire younger people out of college, and that doesn't increase the wages because those people are coming in at entry-level salaries. And so what we'll see is a boost. My guess is July, August, September numbers are going to be well over 200000 a month because this economy engine is going to keep going, and you're going to see higher volumes of people being hired because they're more available. So what do you think uh, the unemployment rate will be by the end of the year? 
I think it stays around the same. It, it really, the, the, even if the Fed raises interest rates uh, by another quarter of a point, I don't think that moves the needle on hiring. I think it can't really get much lower. What, what used to be a rule of thumb 20 years ago was that 25 to 3% was the acceptable unemployment rate. That's, that there, there's, there's a certain number of people that are unemployable. I think that number today is probably right around 3 to 3.5. Three so I, I don't think we get much lower than 3.9, maybe 3.8. Tom, the the cover story of Bloomberg Business Week this week just out is about the workplace. It says the workplace is complicated. The business of equality. What do graduates want out of their jobs? The number one thing that it's really been a change is that, and this is one thing that'll probably that could go counter to what I just said is that graduates now are seeing the market and they're seeing that they can probably get a higher wage. So more than ever before since pre-crash in 2008, you're seeing graduates not accepting jobs early into their senior year. So they're waiting until after graduation and see how the market the market checks out. So they want compensation, they want location, so they want to work in cities major metropolitan areas of where they want to go. So destination is, is number two. And really, culture right. continues to be. They want to work a pl- in a place Tom, that the company appreciates the employees. We appreciate you being with us. Tom Gimble, the founder, the chief executive of LaSalle Network, talking about today's non-farm payroll report. Two days of U.S. and China trade discussions ended in Beijing with little uh, accomplished. Here to talk about uh, the sort of escalating rhetoric between the U.S. and China, at what point it will tip into a more severe trade war, is Mike McDonough, chief economist for financial products here at Bloomberg LP. Uh, Mike, you you penned an, an opinion piece that I thought was fascinating, looking at how a bankruptcy of a major tech company in China could be the real tipping point for a true trade war. Can you explain? Yeah, I think, you know, everyone's focusing on the uh, trade delegation that just visited Beijing. And I think very few people thought uh, we would get something meaningful out of this visit, right? At best, you would get an agreement to keep talking. uh, And that's more or less what we got. Uh, And I think everyone's missing the real front line of a potential trade war, which was the decision the U.S. government made uh, in mid-April to ban the exports of any U.S. products to ZTE, the telecommunications maker. It's one of the biggest telecommunications equipment maker in uh, China. It's correct? definitely one of the biggest, yeah, in, in China, and it's a very important, a very important company. Now, you know, if you know the U.S. were to implement, so, you know, there's some tariff and uh, tariffs on aluminum and steel. They're mostly inconsequential in the global scheme of things, especially when you look at all the countries that had gotten exemptions. Um, there's a list of tariffs that could be put on on Chinese goods. They're a bit more meaningful, but again, in, in, in the scheme of things, not, not that pertinent. Where China is going to be troubled is if U.S. policy leads to the bankruptcy of a Chinese technology company. This is a critical sector in China. They have big plans for the technology sector. It's an important part of the future. So if if the U.S. government starts implementing policy that's going to bankrupt these companies or meaningfully disrupt these companies, that is what could actually trigger a trade war, not these tariffs. Mike McDonough, looking at the uh, the most recent issue of uh, ChinaDaily.com, 
uh, one of the stories is headlined, China, U.S. agree on some trade issues. Indeed, they even mentioned ZTE Corp. They say China made solemn representations to the U.S. side regarding the case of ZTE and that the U.S. side expressed that they will pay attention to these representations and will report China's position to the president of the United States. That sounds a little bit conciliatory, doesn't it? I, I, the first headline I saw about the trade talks were uh, they agreed on some things and disagreed on other things, which is not incredibly useful. Uh, you know, sure, uh, if they go back to the president and the president uh, changes his rhetoric on or, or they change the ruling on ZT, that would be quite positive. But at the same time, there's uh, it's been reported that they're working on executive orders that would ban the sale of telecom uh, equipment in the U.S. by other Chinese firms. Uh, and the most important telecom communications maker in China is Huawei. Uh, and there's uh, I think the Wall Street Journal first reported that they have opened a similar investigation against Huawei that they had on ZT that led to this ban. Uh, a, a similar move against Huawei would have, I think, pretty significant repercussions. I mean, the other thing to think about is it's an important part of China's economy. China is leading the world right now when it comes to mobile payments. These, you know, this telecom equipment is an important part of that. Uh, so th th this could be very disruptive for the entire Chinese economy, which has the, uh, you know, you, you could see a rise in sort of nationalistic tendencies against the U.S. Uh, when, when you do have this disruption. The ZT stock, for example, has been, I halted, I believe, in Hong Kong and Shenzhen since April 17th. So yeah. if you're a shareholder of ZT, you right now don't know what's going on and you can't get out. And that's the U.S. fault. Well, that's exactly what I was going to ask about. I mean, using ZTE as sort of a poster child of what could happen. And just to give a little more yeah. color, we were talking, you said uh, that the uh, the ban on their on selling goods to them and yeah. selling their goods came from uh, their providing goods to North Korea and Iran. They right? are not an innocent victim right. okay, in so this, this whole is, thing. This is part of what's going on. But do we have any sense of the financial impact on ZTE so far and whether they have any recourse to overturn this ban? Uh, you know, I one of the recourses they had the conversation with the, the trade delegation to bring a message to the president. Uh, you know, in terms of long-term health, I can't speak to that as well. There's various reports of like ranging from they'll be okay to they could potentially uh, go bankrupt. To I think they have some loans that are are coming due in the near future. But can you give a sense of just how vast this ban is and and who it could affect in the U.S.? Well, I mean, you know, Intel is a big provider. Micron Technologies is a big provider. Microsoft. Um, there's one company I'm not sure how to pronounce it. Asia Communication. About forty percent of their revenue comes from ZTE. Uh, so this does have a pretty big impact uh, on this. I, you know, I, I don't know the full number. I think there's something like 50, 50 or so suppliers that we have on the Bloomberg terminal, SPLC Go for anyone listening, where you could actually go see all those suppliers uh, and, and their exposure to ZTE. So you get an idea. And then that's on the input side. And then, of course, there's the uh, stores that sell ZTE equipment, right, that actually sell their phones uh, and sell the phones of other Chinese technology companies that, pending how this goes, could also be impacted. Just quickly, you go to China, you don't use your own mobile phone and you don't use your corporate laptop, right? I, I, I use my, my corporate laptop. I, I have my phone on my laptop when I go to China. And you use it. I use it. And you don't worry about it being hacked. I'm not I'm not doing anything that I, I'm worried okay, about. Okay, I'm just saying because, <laughs> yeah. you know, no, yeah. no, but I'm I, serious. I mean, pretty substantial you know corporate I, policy is around the United States. Beware when you go to places like that and be careful I, with your electronics. I try to remain aware everywhere, honestly, nowadays. All right.
Well, we'll leave it there. Well done. Mike McDonough, he's an expert in all things uh, economic, chief economist, financial products for Bloomberg LP. Check out his column about uh, trade in China, how China has a decided advantage. The value of gold has dropped about 4% since mid-April. Indeed, at $1,311 an ounce, gold is uh, pretty where it was uh, at the beginning of the year. Here to tell us about the precious metal and more commodities is Will Rind. He is the founder and the chief executive of Granite Shares. He joins us here in our 1130 studios. Will, thanks for coming in. Why has uh, gold fallen in value uh, since, uh, let's say, mid-April? Is it because of dollar strength? Primarily from the dollar strength, yes. Um, there, there haven't really been um, any catalysts uh, to speak of that would have dri- driven the price higher. You know, the potential geopolitical tensions that um, people were expecting to blow up have actually gone in the other direction, namely North Korea. And so the Korean Peninsula now looking to be much safer than a proposition than it was a year ago. So that, that's sort of taken the shine off gold a little bit. How about the fact that inflation expectations also have kind of uh, tempered a little bit, given the fact that we haven't seen the wage increases that many people were expecting? I, I think a little bit, but it's still kind of bubbling under the surface that you know we have the strongest you know inflationary platform for the last ten years, and so while in the short term you know the the numbers off of you know the February numbers weren't as strong as as people expected, there are more kind of forces at work that um, are giving people pause uh, on the inflation side. So is there a bullish case to be made for gold at $1,311 an ounce? I think yes, um, because in my view, this the dollar strength is temporary, um, that this is not a longer term thing. Um, I think that you know, in an environment of rising interest rates and you know, increasing inflation expectations, um, plus the higher volatility, the, the gold and commodities more broadly are a, a place to be. And you know, people are looking at uncorrelated or low correlated assets right now um, in order to take some risk out of the equity or bond market. And gold is one of those places. I want to shift focus to oil simply because prices there have risen to the highest since 2014. And there's a big question of how much higher they can possibly go, nearly at the $70 a barrel mark. Uh, what's your take on, on that? Well, I mean, this is a, a very interesting story. And you know, if, if you go back to last summer, when I launched uh, Granite shares in the market, I mean, some of our ETFs have oil exposure. And a common thing I would hear from people is oil's never going to go above $40 again. And that was just last summer. And since then, we've had this huge rally. And really, the main reason is because there's been a huge amount of demand, you know, synchronized global economic growth. But these OPEC cuts that they've put in place have really kind of bitten back on the supply. And then I think more, more recently, the, the dollar weakness and you know tensions again in the Middle East, um, particularly with Syria and Iran, um, have sort of kept momentum going. Right. But but to some degree, that's already being all baked in. Should those tensions ease, should the dollar strengthen as we're seeing it do so today? It's actually at the highest levels of the year now. I'm just trying to understand at what point do people start to say, wait a second, this seems unsustainable. At some point, you know, production from 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 shale drillers and from, you know, Iraq even, you know, might, yeah. might offset this. Yeah, I mean, I think people thought that at $50. They thought that at $60. Now they're thinking at $70. And yeah, the, the point is that a lot of, uh, you know, when commodity moves happen, a lot of it's momentum driven. 
And you know what's different about oil is that there is there is a strong fundamental demand there. The market's in backwardation, um, which means that you know people are willing to pay a premium for oil for delivery now versus in the future. And so there's a real strong underpinning underpinning for oil demand right now. And you know how far it can go, obviously who knows. But um, certainly it's a market that's caught a lot of people by surprise. All right, but the same reason that you said that gold was down in price since mid-April, wouldn't that apply also to oil? Couldn't you just say that oil has reached a sort of near-term peak at $70 a barrel, particularly when, you know, you have, as Lisa said, you got shale producers who can turn on the spigot and they can produce as much oil as you want. The only constraint is actually the pipeline system and the logistics of getting it to the marketplace. Yeah, I think that's true. But the lesson that they've learned from last time is that if they do that, that that's one surefire way to make the price go lower again, which they're reticent to do after what happened in the uh, in But the they can make, a lot of shale ago. producers can make money, can make pretty good money at 40 and $50 a barrel. Well, I'd say at 50, most people are making good money now. Um, so at 70, $70 a barrel, they're making really good money. Um, and I think people are just a bit more cautious, uh, certainly the bigger producers, about increasing production. I think what you may see production coming on board is actually the small or startup producers who are thinking, exactly what you were saying. Hang on a minute. If we put the money in, that we can get capital, we can start drilling, then we can produce and we can make money. That's, I think, where there's a potential risk. How high do you think it could go? Um, honestly, no idea. <laughs> All right. Fair enough. <laughs> uh, let's let's move uh, to uh, aluminum because that's been in the news very much recently. It was huge run up as uh, Rusal uh, came into the crosshairs of U.S. regulators. I'm wondering your view, uh, given the tremendous rally here, do you think that uh, you don't really want to be holding aluminum right now? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think that um, like a lot of these things, there was a big hype um, when the sanctions you know, came in um, and aluminum, steel, uh, palladium to a lesser extent, but the Russia metals, uh, if you want to call them that, um, got bid up a lot. And a lot of analysts were talking about you know, I'm still talking about, you know, very, very high prices for aluminum and some of these other metals. I think it's probably a little bit overblown at the moment. Um, but certainly there was a lot of fever because by definition, a lot of these sanctions, when they happen, they're inflationary for the underlying commodity markets. Well, we're going to have to sort of see what happens because the European Union is also negotiating with the United States on steel and aluminum tariffs as well. Right. So that would affect not necessarily the price as much as the Russian issue, but it would certainly affect the supply in the United States. Correct. But a lot of that comes from outside of the States. You know, Canada is obviously a big producer for the for the States, um, as is Brazil, uh, Korea as well. But um, yeah, of course, any kind of trade war um, affects the baseline commodities or whatever uh, piece of you know, legislation is being talked about at that time. Now, I know that uh, you were talking to Lisa offline about platinum, right? You <laughs> want to give us your thoughts on platinum, another precious metal used particularly in the automobile industry and also in fuel cell technology. Correct. So one, one story that you know, doesn't get talked about a lot because the conversation here around future metals um, largely tends itself or lends itself to lithium and uh, cobalt, manganese, other sort of components of the lithium-ion battery. And of course, the, there's a big uh, groundswell of support and a huge momentum around battery technology, particularly for, for cars. But a lot of people don't necessarily realize that there's also a lot of technology around hydrogen fuel cell vehicles. Now, it's not happening in the US to the same extent as happening in China and other places, but the, the battery argument sort of goes to the point where 
it's binary. You believe that the market becomes all electric and therefore there's huge demand for battery and the metals associated with it, but there's no demand for any other technology. I believe that there will be a market for hydrogen fuel cells yeah. and you don't have to increase that by much for that to dramatically increase the demand for platinum, for example. Thanks very much for being here. Yeah, this is really fabulous. We really appreciate it. Yeah, Thank Will you. Ryan, founder, chief executive, Granite Shares. Uh, interesting conversation. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg PL podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Pim Fox. I'm on Twitter at Pim Fox. I'm on Twitter at Lisa Abramowitz1. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.